Let's open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Yeah, we're right in the middle. We're about halfway through the Bible, a little bit more than half. One main verse this morning, but let's go where Pastor Layton read for us earlier. I've entitled the morning's message, How to Pray, How Not to Pray. Verse 1, chapter 25. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, copied. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of a king is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of of great men. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than you should be put lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. As we get to uh, Proverbs 25, sort of a new division uh, for the Proverbs. There's still the Proverbs of King Solomon, but they've been collected by um, friends of Hezekiah. And verses 1 through 7, and, and the reason that I read 7 is this section deals with relationships uh, that his son would have had with a king. And because Hezekiah's name is brought up, and because he is esteemed the greatest of all the kings of the ten southern tribes in Judah, um, he prayed several times. One was a good prayer, one was not a good prayer. And so if you'll turn with me back to Second Kings chapter 18, we will do sort of a, a bio on Hezekiah and his life, his greatness. Uh, we're told uh, in verse 3 of uh, chapter 18 that Hezekiah uh, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. He removed the high praises, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, broken pieces of bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burnt incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. I'm just going to stop on this and make one point. Uh, uh, The next verse is going to say, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Israel, either before or after uh, the kings of Judah, I should say. So he is looked at and revered as the best of the 20 kings that were in Judah. Eight of them were good, the rest were bad. Now at this time, the kingdom would have been divided. There would have been the 10 tribes in the north. They had 19 kings. None of them were good. Every time you read about the kings of the north under Jeroboam, it says this, they did evil in the sight of the Lord after their father, Jeroboam. And so they had not one good one in the whole bunch. But the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, they had 20. And of the 20, eight were good. So when we read here that he was the best of all the kings of Judah, it's in reference to the eight good ones. Why was he better? Well, he does something that nobody else does. And this would include David, even though I don't believe he was a greater king than David. It gets into this brass serpent here um, that the children of Israel burned incense to. He called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan, things, he says, it's a thing of brass. And just really briefly, I want to give this to you because Jesus used it when he was witnessing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Here was a guy who was a real seeker. He, he knew Jesus was different. He comes to Jesus by night. And he says, we know you're different. Nobody can do what you're doing unless God is with him. And the Lord is known to get cut to the quick and get to the point. And so he says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. He doesn't get it. And he says, how can I be born again? I'm an old guy. Do I go in my mother's room? Do I come out again? So he's just not understanding it. And he says, 
It's like the wind, Nicodemus. You can't see where it goes. You can see the effects of it as it blows through a tree. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then, in order for this to happen, in order for the Holy Spirit to come, he, he speaks to a Pharisee who would have known fully Numbers 22 and the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. So what he does after talking about being born again, he says, Nicodemus, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, the children of Israel came out of Egypt. They had manna in the morning, manna in the evening, and manna at supper time. They are sick of manna. And um, they complained about it. They said, we're sick of it. And uh, instead of being thankful that they had any food at all, uh, the Lord sent in poisonous snakes. They began to bite the people. The people began to die. Then they repented. It's like what we read this morning. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Well, it got their attention. Now they're dying. And so they go to Moses. We're sorry. We repent. Will you pray for us? Moses does, and the Lord says, I want you to take a pole. I want you to make a serpent made out of bronze. Go talk to the people. Tell them anybody that goes and looks at the serpent is going to live. And anybody who doesn't look at the serpent, they're going to die. I'm sure half the crowd said, what do we got to lose? And they did it, and they lived. And the other half the crowd probably said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's dumb. I'm going home. Well, they died. Brass is a symbol of judgment. A serpent speaks for itself. Sin, the devil, in the garden. So basically, the picture that is being put forth here is sin is being judged. You sin by complaining. God will forgive your sin and heal you if you look up at the brass serpent. Now, I think the lights began to go on for Nick when Jesus said, unless... Um, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And when that happens, sin will be forgiven. And long story short, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were part of the religious hierarchy that actually became believers uh, in, in Jesus. But they turned this thing into a thing of of worship, idolatry, so that even during Hezekiah's time, he's tearing down all the, 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 the graven images, but it makes special mention that he takes uh, the bronze serpent um, because and he, he basically crushes it. And he says, Nehushtan, this is nothing. This, and you guys are worshiping it? And so he... That was the extent of his, his, um, his greatness, that even something as important to the history of Israel, he'd have nothing to do with it. You worship God and God alone. Verse six said, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him, He subdued the Philistines as far as the fortified city. The first eight verses is a spiritual evaluation of Hezekiah, who some of Hezekiah's servants gathered some of Solomon's Proverbs, and one of them happens to be Proverbs chapter 25 in our Bible. Now, time frame, where are we here? Um, The first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, were united under one Israel. Um, When Solomon did not receive the wisdom that was passed down to him from those that were older in him, spiritually speaking, instead he listened to his buddies who told him what he wanted to hear. Uh, There was a revolt and rebellion. And for the first time in Israel's young history, the nation was divided. We have Jeroboam, who took 10 tribes and went north. He put up two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan. And he forbid the people to worship in Jerusalem. In the south, he had Rehoboam. This would have been um, 
Solomon's uh, descendant. And um, uh, there was only two, Judah and Benjamin. So when we read about Israel during this time, it is a divided nation, two. Now I gotta be careful because I really went over <laughs> uh, the first service, but I, I can't uh, not talk a little bit about what's going on before I go any farther. Um, Isaiah 11 verse 11 says that the Lord will gather together Israel a second time. And right before the Ezekiel 38 battle uh, takes place, and having said that, I have to stop here and say what's happening right now um, in Syria um, is one of the biggest birth pains that I've seen since Israel became a state in 1948. What I just said is saying a lot. Uh, What's happening with Russia right now, he is uh, flexing his muscles uh, with Ukraine. Nobody's saying anything about that. And uh, he's got a nuclear submarine off the coast of Syria right now with the largest one in the world capable of taking out nuke in 20 cities just like that. Parliament just two days ago gave him permission to go to war against Syria. And with that, they've allowed and are now in the process They have two military bases already set up. They just took a runway yesterday, and they have 100, and are going to have 150,000 troops on the ground in Syria, all to uh, build up um, Assad's dictatorship out of Damascus. Yesterday, China got involved. So now China and Russia and Hezbollah are all fighting on the same side. Gang, all I want to tell you is keep, as Jesus said, to watch. This is building up to the Ezekiel 38 war. We know it's going to happen. And these birth pains, Jesus said, they're just going to happen more frequently. And it's just going to become more obvious as these things begin to happen. And believe it or not, our study this morning is actually going to deal with ISIS and and Nineveh. And uh, how they were then and how things are now, now, that's in 38, Ezekiel 38, that battle. And the main players are Russia and Iran. And they are the, the main ones that are involved with this, this war that comes up against Israel. Yesterday, Putin gave a warning. Uh, two days ago, he gave a warning to us. He told his third star general to tell our pilots, get out of town. Um, Then, uh, his concern yesterday was giving a little warning to Israel, mind your own business. In other words, stay out. And you can tell I could probably talk about this for quite a while, and I did this much this morning, and I got in trouble because I went way over. So back to the Bible study. But do yourself a favor. Um, Hischannel.com, World News Briefing, Briefing with Barry Stagnant and one of my favorite Calvary Chapel pastors, Mike McIntosh. And find it and just uh, on a weekly basis, they're cutting edge on what's coming down and they are spot on with, um, with what's unfolding right now. Ezekiel 37 says before this war takes place, it talks about taking two sticks and making them one. Well, why say that? Because during this time right here, Israel is two, not one. But when this battle happens, he says, take that stick and make it one. Because when they come back and become a nation again, it won't be divided. Israel is one nation today. And so that's, uh, again, important Bible prophecy, as it's not two, but, but it's one. All right. What happens in verses 9 through 12 I'm not going to read all this. I'm just going to explain the history. They became so evil, not having one good king. Again, the reoccurring phrase is they did evil in the sight of the Lord after their father Jeroboam. The Lord had finally had enough. 722 BC, he allows the Assyrians to take the northern ten tribes, and they are dispersed. 
And, um, and now we're fast forwarding a little bit farther than that. And we're about eight years later, we're having um, the king of Assyria, whose name is Sennacherib, different king from verse nine, so some time has passed. They took the 10 tribes, but now they're coming against Jerusalem. And so we read in verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. So basically, he's on the march, and he's headed south towards Jerusalem. Fear enters um, uh, Hezekiah's heart at this time. And what he does, let me just say this, this is what he doesn't do. He doesn't pray. Verse seven tells us he's in rebellion against the king of Syria. And now the king of Assyria is coming against him. What he doesn't do is he doesn't pray. Instead, he faints. And we're told men ought always to pray and not to faint. But he freaked out. So we read in verse 14, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria in Lachish, saying, My, I did, I'm wrong. Uh, please turn away from me. Whatever you want, I'll pay it. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, and 30 talents of gold. And so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. What a bounty. This, basically, this tax so that he wouldn't come any farther. But all it really did, it accomplished absolutely nothing. It just showed that uh, Hezekiah is a pushover as far as he's concerned. And beginning with verse uh, uh, 17, uh, they continue the march. This did not deter the king of Assyria uh, one bit. Instead, it actually emboldens them. And beginning with verse 17, there's a series of three different taunts. They began to taunt um, the people in Jerusalem. And um, the guy who's doing the, the taunting, he's sent by the king of Assyria. I really butchered this guy's name on Wednesday night. I read it eight times, and every time I read it, I read it a different way. So I pronounced it out real carefully, and I'm only going to say it one way this morning. It's Rabshaki, and it's going to stay Rabshaki through the whole study, even if I'm saying it wrong now. That's who he is. So Rabshaki comes, and he begins his taunt in verse 19. And he says, what confidence in this do you have? And the first taunt is, in verse 21, he says, don't think you're going to trust in Egypt. Just because they got chariots, they're not going to help you. uh, It says, on which if a man leans, if you lean on Egypt, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you know, who trusts in him? He's a a wuss. He's he's nothing to, to us Assyrians. So they're taunting him. Forget about it. Don't put your trust in Assyria. Taunt number two is in verse 22. And uh, don't put your trust in the, in the Lord your God. Uh, not he who has high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away. Look, Hezekiah has already stripped the temple of everything that, that you've given to him. You gonna do that? Nobody's ever stood up against this. Name one country that has ever uh, stood against Assyria. And so they, the taunt goes on. But then the sarcasm kicks in. And um, in verse 25, if this isn't sarcasm, I don't know what is. He says, well, I've come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it. And the Lord told me, he said, go up against the land and destroy it. 
So here he is not only taunting, but it's, it's sarcasm at, um, you know, at, the, at the highest degree. And the taunts continue. Um, 23, the Lord told him to come. 26 through 25, if you look at 26, um, um, Rabshakai again begins this, this taunt. And basically, he lists the names of the countries that Assyria has already taken. And he says, we've taken this one, we've taken this one, and you think that you're going to, to uh, take us? And what's happening here in verse 26 is that they're speaking to, the Assyrians are speaking in Hebrew. Now, some of the guys on the wall understood um, what was going on, and they said in verse 26, please don't speak to us in Hebrew, but speak to us in the Aramaic, Aramaic language, because there's some of us guys up here that hear it. In other words, they didn't want the people to lose heart because of the taunts. Don't speak to us in Hebrew. Speak in another language. And basically, the, the guy said, forget about that. And um, the words that they use here, we want them to hear uh, what we're going to say because when they hear the guys on the wall, all on verse 27, they will eat and drink their own waste with you. So one of the points that, that there's no way I can describe except because of current events is just how brutal and evil the Assyrians actually were. I'll put a picture up on the screen of Sennacherib and how he uh, struck fear into the hearts of the people. And I'll connect some dots here. Uh, The gruesome carnage in northern Iraq right now with the beheadings and other unspeakable acts of barbarity, it's nothing new. Rather, it marks the resurfacing of abominations that were common in that area before the region was called that name. At least 1,000 years before Islam, once upon a time, it was Assyria. They were so brutal that to intimidate uh, their followers, they would execute by beheading and then they would put the heads of the people that they would execute on poles. They showed absolutely no mercy, uh, man, woman, or child. And that is the reason that Hezekiah capitulated and says, what do you want? You got it. Because, and the guy's on the wall saying, don't speak to us with all your taunts and all that you're gonna do because their reputation of their brutality preceded them. Just this week, ISIS beheaded 20 more people, and they have a lot more in, in, in the wings. So what's going on in, in Iraq right now is the evaporation of Iraq and Syria. It's imploding, and it's up for grabs. And once again, we have a terrorist organization that um, the reports that I'm getting right now, we're so severely underestimating their capacities that... It's just a big signpost that's, that's leading to, um, well, the terrorist capital of the world is Damascus. And now we have uh, everybody focused on trying to keep Assad in power. That's what Russia's doing there, along with Iran. And they're threatening Israel, saying, don't get involved. Well, it's a second service. I can go longer if I want to. The UN, when, when Benjamin Netanyahu got up and said what was happening with Russian boots on the ground, he purposely paused, waiting for a response from the UN. Who's going to stand up and say anything on behalf of Israel? What a lot of people don't know is our president directed both of our speakers to leave the room during this conversation and not be a part of it. And when Benjamin Yatu got to the part that basically says this is acceptable, what is the UN going to do? He stared him down. 
and it was uncomfortable because nobody said anything. And that means if our Secretary of State and Ambassador for the UN are removed and their chairs are empty during that period of time, what kind of message does that send? Basically, all that to say this. Israel has a saying about um, its own protection, and that is never again. Never again. And um, he's referring, of course, to the Holocaust. And uh, they have the best air force in the world, better than America's. And they'll take care of business if they have to. So what we're watching right now, probably Isaiah 17, that could happen. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. That could happen at any time. So, and the, the brutality, we've never seen anything like it in our lifetime. Uh, what human beings are willing to do to, to inflict terror into the hearts of people and actually enticing some teenage boys from around the world to actually want to be in on the action. And that's the kind of world that we're living in, in right now. So I wanted to show you the picture and um, what was then is back again in the form of ISIS. And the Proverbs tells us, as people listen to the king, um, these taunts that are, are given here, the third taunt is in verse 31. Don't trust in the Lord, don't trust in Egypt. The third taunt is don't listen to Hezekiah, the king of Assyria but make peace with me. So don't listen to him. Come on, we'll take care of you. We'll, we'll make a deal. And after all this rhetoric going on, what do, the people, what do the people do? Well, we read in verse 35, after they got done with their speech by summing it up, by saying, among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from mine. You guys think you're going to get off the hook? Not going to happen. But notice the response of the people. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. Why? For the king's command was, do not answer him. Proverbs 25. These are the Song of these are Solomon's proverbs picked out by Hezekiah's men. They respected Hezekiah. They respected what he had to say. And uh, when it came for a response, what are you going to do? They didn't say anything. Why? Because the king told them not to. Then verse thirty-seven basically is um, Eliakim and Joash. They have to go give this news now to. King Hezekiah. They tear their clothes, put ashes on their head, and as we pick up chapter 19, they have to give this report now to the king. And when Hezekiah hears it, he tears his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord. And this now is leading up to Hezekiah's first prayer. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the, the household of Shebna and the scribes and the elders and the priest, covered with sackcloth, he sends a message to Isaiah. So Isaiah would have been the prophet during this time. Hebrews tells us that in these days that God spoke to the people through dreams, through visions, through the prophets. That was his way of communicating. And here is a prophet. He's going to speak in behalf of the Lord. Hezekiah sends out a messenger. We need to hear from the Lord. Go get Isaiah and send for him. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble. Rebuke, blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshaki, whom the master of the king of Assyria has sent to, to reproach the living God, maybe he'll reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And through the rest of this chapter, there's this back and forth where the word comes 
from Isaiah to Hezekiah in verse six, and this is what he tells them. He says, Hezekiah, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with the servants of the kings of Assyria which have blasphemed me. You don't worry about it. This is the Lord's problem, and he's gonna take care of it. Well, that doesn't stop the taunting of Rabshaki. And so, basically, in verse 14, he gets this letter, more taunts, more threats. We're gonna do you in. And what does Hezekiah, Hezekiah do? I told the story during the first service that what this reminded me of. Walking in when Bill Waters was still with us, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Plainfield. And uh, walked in and, and there he was at the kitchen table. And spread out were all his bills. And he was just praying over the thing. And he said, Lord, it's your church. <laughs> he said, your bills. I don't have the money. What are you going to do about it? And so that's, that's what this reminds me of right here. Um, uh, Willie went to be with the Lord the same day Reggie White did. Uh, the very same day that that tsunami took out a quarter of a million people. That all happened about 10 years ago on December 26th. I can't read this verse without thinking about Bill. He's a very good friend of mine. Miss him dearly. But he's, he's doing fine. Him and Reggie are up there fellowshipping about the Packers and songwriting and all that kind of stuff, I think. Here's Hezekiah. He reads the letter. And he spread it, he went to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. He says, Lord, look what these guys are saying they're going to do. What are you going to do? And we read that verse 18, this is his prayer. Here's his first prayer. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubs, your God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria, have laid waste the nations of the land and have cast their gods into the fire. But they were not gods, but the works of of men's hands, wooden stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God and you alone. That's the prayer. You're God, nobody else. Show them. And so, cutting to the quick, Isaiah comes to him, and they're surrounded. Uh, by a a huge army of 185,000 men. And in verse 32, Isaiah speaks to Hezekiah again. And he says, therefore, thus says the Lord God concerning the king of Assyria. Chapter 19, verse 32. He says, he shall not come into this city. He's not gonna shoot an arrow, nor come in with a shield. He's not gonna build a siege against it by the way that he came, will be the same way he returns. And he shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there was... There were the corpses, they were all dead. This is the end of the Assyrian Empire. The first world empire was Egypt. The second world empire was Assyria. Their military might and their leader, I would add, died without engaging in a battle because the battle was the Lord's. What happened to Sennacherib? Well, the king of Assyria departed and went, returned home, and he remained at Nineveh. So Sennacherib's home is Nineveh. And um, today, 
there is a city there, but it's not called Nineveh. You know what it's called? It's called Mosul. And it's just been taken by ISIS. And ISIS today is in charge of Mosul. Oh, isn't that interesting? And the, um, what they did when ISIS came in there, I, for sake of time, I had to cut and edit. I was going to show you some pictures of them destroying any of these ancient artifacts, including the tomb of Jonah. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Because he hated Ninevites because of their brutality. I don't want those people saved. They're the cruelest. It'd be like say, do you want ISIS saved? Well, a good part of my flesh says absolutely not. But God in his mercy, uh, in talking to uh, Jonah, this reluctant evangelist, said, look, there's, there's women and kids in there too that don't know their right hand from their left hand. And I'm gonna show mercy on them. So you go preach repentance. The thing is, it was the greatest revival that ever happened. Every person got saved from the king on down. And yet, I wouldn't want to preach to those guys, no more than, than um, Jonah wanted to preach to uh, Nineveh. Um, you know, I, I see the brutality of ISIS, and I'm thinking somebody, take him out. Just take him out. And, um, but the Lord is willing that none should perish. He loves these guys. He wants them saved. Are they going to be? Probably not. But, in talking with Elijah Abraham, one of the biggest revivals in the world today is in Indonesia and in Iran. That's where the, uh, a lot of the tourists are coming, not from America anymore, but from these revivals that are breaking out over in Indonesia and particularly in Iran. So here's the answer to his first prayer. And Sennacherib goes back um, to Nineveh, his two sons kill him the same night. Very interesting because here is the most powerful nation in the world coming to an end in one day and the leader getting taken out the next night. Reminds me of Babylon. Here is a nation that fell without one shot being fired and the leader, the king of Babylon at the time, died that same, very same evening and it was another empire change. From here it went from Assyria to Babylon. When the king of Babylon died, it went from uh, the hand, the writing on the wall says, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and I'm gonna give it to the Medes and the Persians. So Darius came in, and in one day, everything changed. So you have a whole, a whole new, new empire. All right, the second prayer of Hezekiah, the one that's not so good, chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah was sick, near to death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And there's this commercial out there that shows this memo. I don't know if you've seen it. It says, today you're going to have your heart attack. And uh, it gives you sort of a, a heads up, you know. Well, what would you do if, if, if somebody came to you and said, well, Everybody, it's been pointed out a man wants to die. Well, what would you do if you knew this was, okay, you got a day to live. Well, this, this hit Hezekiah right between the eyes because he didn't want to die. But the Lord said, set your house in order because you're going to die. So what does he do? Verse two, he turns his face towards the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, Remember, O Lord, I prayed how I've walked before you in truth. I had a loyal heart. I've done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the Lord heard this guy's prayer. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord God, the father of, of David, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I'm going to heal you. On the third day, you're going to go, go back and you're going to worship in the house of the Lord. Matter of fact, I'm going to add to your days 15 years, and I'll deliver you from the hand of the king of Assyria. I'll defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, 
Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So he took a lump of fig and laid it on the boil, sort of a poultice, and he recovered. So he was supposed to die. But he says, I don't want to die. Um, And the Lord, for whatever reason, granted his petition. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, how do I know for sure I'm not going to die? And he says, well, what, what do you want to see? You want, you want to see, um, how, about, how about the sundial moving ahead 10 degrees? Or how about the sundial going backwards 10 degrees? Will, will that f- make you feel any better? He says, well, I don't think it's a big deal that it'd go ahead 10 degrees, but it would be a major big deal uh, through the cosmos to cause everything to go back 10 degrees? I picked, to, I picked to go back 10 degrees. And the sundial went back 10 degrees, and Hezekiah lived. And he had his prayer answered. Now, was it the best thing that could have happened, having his prayer answered? Why is this not a good prayer? Let's go to Luke chapter 22 in the New Testament. Luke 22, verse 41. This is Jesus' last night. He's been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Takes some of his disciples with him. Verse 39, and coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, which was his custom. That's how Judas knew where he was. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came to a place, he said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. And he withdrew from there about a stone sword, and he knelt down and he prayed. And he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Let me read it again. Um, and, And I'll paraphrase it so you know exactly what Jesus is saying here. Father, if it's your will, I do not want to die. That's exactly what is being said here. If there's any other way that mankind can be redeemed except me dying and going to that cross, that's my prayer request. So let's just stop there. Father, if it, let's forget the your will, your will part. Father, I don't want to die. That's my prayer request. That's what Hezekiah's prayer request was, right? I don't want to die. And the Lord answered it. I just want you to Think for a second what the implications would be if that's all Jesus prayed. Uh, when Peter came and was going to defend the Lord, he took out a sword and started whipping it around when they came to arrest Jesus. He says, Pete, put it away. Don't you know I could call for 12 legions of angels right now? They'd take care of business. Put it away. But here, Jesus was fully God and fully human. And being fully human, he prayed, but he prayed correctly. But I want you just to imagine the consequences, just for a second. If you would have stopped with, Father, remove this cup from me, period. What would the consequences have been if Jesus didn't die on Calvary's cross, if he didn't and wasn't buried, if he didn't descend into hell, And if he didn't rise again the third day and the resurrection never would have taken place, would that have any major implications beyond anything this preacher could ever put in words? Actually, it became an issue in the church of Corinth. Paul had to address it. Some were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching and your faith is in total vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if it be that the dead are not raised up. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? That if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. 
Then they also which have fallen asleep, they're perished, they're gone, there's no hope. We had a, a, a funeral here last week with Barb, and um, mixed emotions. Uh, we'll miss her, but at the same time, we have this hope. We sorrow, but not like those who don't have hope. Um, she's home, and we're, we have this hope of seeing her again. And then Paul sums it all up by saying, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are men most miserable. The consequences. But Jesus didn't do that. He taught the disciples to pray. Go, go back to chapter 11. The title this morning is How to Pray and How Not to Pray. The disciples were watching Jesus pray one day with the Father. And they were totally absorbed in what the Lord was doing. And all they really wanted was, whatever you got right now and whatever you're doing, would you show us how to do that? So in chapter 11, verse 1, came to pass as he was praying Jesus in a certain place when, when he was done praying, that one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to do that. And John was taught, as John taught his disciples, so the Lord says, okay, when you pray, you pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be it your name, your kingdom come, Every say, everybody say the next part out loud. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How we pray. Well, how we pray is we can have a prayer request and but it's got to be prefaced, Lord, but whatever your will is. I say that Hezekiah's second prayer is not a good prayer. If you go back to um, Second Kings, I want to read something to you about his attitude. If there would have been consequences if Jesus wouldn't have died and he would have prayed, thy will be done, What's missing in Hezekiah's prayer is, I just don't want to die, period. Now, the question is, were there consequences for Hezekiah not saying, nevertheless, not why my will be done, but thine? And the answer is, absolutely. He had a time that the Lord says, time to come home, pack your bags, get your house in order, I'm bringing you home. Instead, he wanted to stay. Now, what happened was he gets healed and the first thing that happens is the rumors he was gonna die, everybody knew about it. Even some of the big wigs up in Babylon heard about it. And in verse 12, it says some of these guys from Babylon send letters and presents to Hezekiah. Heard he was sick, but now he's better. And 13, Hezekiah was attentive to them, showed them the house of the treasures of the Lord, the silver, the gold, the spices, all the armory, all the treasure. Matter of fact, there was nothing in the house of all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So these guys take off, and Isaiah the prophet shows up. And says, he says, Hezekiah, come here. What, what, what do these guys want? And from, where do they come from? And Hezekiah said, well, these, these guys, are, they're from Babylon. And Isaiah says, well, what have they seen in the house? And Hezekiah said, well, they've, they've seen everything in my house. They've seen my treasures. I showed them everything. And then Hezekiah, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house all what your fathers have accumulated until this day are gonna be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of, the, some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You know who that is? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were the cream of the crop. They went first. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, now 
What I want you to see here is the self-centeredness of his prayer life. Then his, in other words, he's saying, you're gonna get ravaged. Jerusalem is gonna be wasted. And what does Hezekiah have to say about this? Ah, oh, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? Not my problem. I'm gonna live for the next 15 years, and yeah, but that's down the road, and it doesn't involve me. It was a self-centered prayer. It wasn't a good prayer. It wasn't a prayer that said, Lord, you're smarter than I am, and I don't know that these guys are gonna come down and check the place out, and they're gonna be thinking about it for years, all the riches that they're down here in Jerusalem. But there was something even worse that would perpetrate the Lord allowing Babylon to do such a thing. Chapter 21, he has a son. And he's 12 years old when he becomes king. Well, in order for him to become king, the 15 years had to come to an end. So in verse 29 of chapter 20, Hezekiah rests with his fathers. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. He was 12 years old. In other words, he should have never have been born. 12 years old. He shouldn't be on the scene if Hezekiah would have just said, put my house in order, you mean I get to go to heaven today? My question would have, would have been, is, is it going to hurt? <laughs> I'd love to go to heaven. How about right now? You know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Amen? I'm creatures of, we don't want, we don't want the, the idea of the pain factor and all this involved. But, um, you know, he should have just accepted the word of the Lord and none of this would have happened. But you don't know how bad this gets. We're going from the best to the worst. For we read in verse one, he was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned for 59 years. Everything good that his dad has done he made it 10 times worse than it ever was before. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which his father had destroyed. He raised up the altars of Baal, made wooden images. Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and he served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I'll put my name. He put altars on all the hosts of heaven in two courts in the house of the Lord. And this one really gets me. Also he made his sons pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spirits and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Some versions said more evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke the Lord to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house in Jerusalem which I have chosen of all the tribes of Israel, I'm gonna put my name forever and I'll not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I have given to their fathers, only if they're careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all that the law has uh, to, to my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servant, the prophet, saying, because Manasseh, the king of Judah has done these abominations and he's acted more wicked than all the Amorites who were before him and he also made Judah sin with its idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will bring such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Well, what's he gonna do? He's gonna allow... Um, the Babylonians to come down and do exactly that. But here's the kicker game. It didn't have to happen. 
Babylon would have never came down and checked the place out, and Manasseh would have never been born and become the most evil. Now after Manasseh, turn with me to James 4 as we close up, James 4 and 5. There was another king that came where there was revival. His name was Josiah. But even Josiah, with his great reforms in finding the word of God again and proclaiming it, even with that reform, it wasn't enough to turn the tide. The damage had been done by Manasseh. So Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, these were the last ones before the Lord allowed the Babylonians to come in and completely destroy Jerusalem. Bible study this morning. How to pray, how not to pray. How to pray, here's how not to, Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have your reward. But when you pray, you go into your room, you shut your door and you pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who's in secret, he'll reward you openly. Another way not to pray. When you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. I grew up in Protestant denomination, learned um, the grace prayer. When you go to bed at night, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. And bless Uncle Johnny and Aunt May and blah, 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 blah. And you just rattle it off and go to sleep. You're not talking to the Lord. You're praying a repetitious prayer. So even the Lord's prayer can become a repetitious prayer. Or praying the rosary, which is what? The same prayer over and over and over again. Imagine having a friend, uh, your best friend, and every day you go up to him and you say exactly the same thing to him, every day. And he's thinking, you're crazy, man. (laughs) And and our Heavenly Father wants, wants an intimate relationship with us, and we rattle off a vain repetitious prayer. It says, don't call any man on your earth your father. You only have one father. There's only one mediator between God and man. And when you're going through something, tell him the truth because he already knows the truth. Lord, I'm ticked right now at this guy. My heart's not in the right place. I'm in the flesh, and you know it better than I do. And I need your help right now to get me back where I should be. Uh, You might as well tell him the truth because he knows the truth anyway. We're told to pray without ceasing. And basically that means always just keeping your mind. You know you have your jobs and your responsibilities. He understands that. But the idea of, of that mindset where your mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He wants you to think like he thinks. And so when you pray, don't use vain Repetitious words, they mean absolutely nothing. Matthew 11, therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe it, that you will have it. You have not because you ask not. And especially Luke 11, pray, when you pray, pray that your will be done. Do we pray for the sick? And James, we'll get to that in just a second, but some of the reasons our prayers aren't answered is for selfish reasons. Go to James 4, verse 2. <laughs> I get a kick out of this. Every, every time there's a game, a football game, before the game you, you see, or after the game, you see in both end zones, or before the game, both teams praying. Well, what, the Lord's supposed to listen to this team down here who wants to win the game? What about the guys on the other end of the field praying the same prayer? Everybody knows the Lord loves the Packers better than any other team. (laughs) Why pray? It's it's just a given. Why why even make it an issue? Verse 2, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. James 4, verse 2. You fight in war and you do not have because you don't ask. And then you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, I'm not gonna 
be, I'm not going to make you a spoiled brat. What, heavenly, what father would do that? There's times, can I have this? No. Why not? Well, because I said so. My judgment is it's not for your best. So parents don't always say yes. And so the Lord doesn't always say yes. Do we pray for the sick? Now we can look at James 5. It talks about praying for the sick. But I'm going to preface this in closing by telling you Paul's thorn in the flesh, which was an affliction. He prayed three times. He said, Lord, I want to sing God. Then answer him. Lord, I pray again. I want the sword in the flesh gone. No answer. Third time, which means we're to be persistent in prayer. Lord, please take this thing away. Finally, the Lord answered him and says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, you just got back from heaven. And I need to keep you in a place where you're humble. So in my weakness, you're made strong. And for this reason, I'm not going to answer your prayer request. The affliction's going to remain because it's better for you. And I'm prefacing what I'm about to read here that we pray for people all the time because we're told to. We're looking at James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anybody among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. We do that here. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, it will be forgiven. All right? We pray that, but I always preface it with not knowing all the reasons this person might be going through whatever they're going through. So we preface it by saying, Lord, we want you to heal this person. But according to your perfect will, your will be done. Because you know all the implications farther down the road. You could have an instant healing now. I've seen that. And um, then others that simply weren't. Lord's will be done. Verse 16, confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, when it comes to prayer, you might think that um, guys like Elijah or Elisha or um, these great prophets from the past had something up special going for them. The Bible teaches just the opposite. They were average Joes. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. No different from me, no different from you. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. He prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. The thing is, just do it. I think that'd make a great t-shirt. Prayer, just do it. Yeah, maybe I will. That sounds pretty good, actually. The last story I'll tell you is a parable about prayer. And it carries with it the idea of Proverbs 25, verse 7, where it says, It is better for you... Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the palace of the great king for it's better that he say to you, come up here than than that he should put you in a lower place. And of course, we all know the story in the New Testament. When you go to a wedding, don't sit in a place of honor because somebody might come more honorable than you and the, the host of the wedding says, hey, you... I'm saving that seat for my buddy. You, you go sit down there. And now you're embarrassed in front of everybody. It's a picture of, instead of seeking attention, the whole idea of having this humble attitude and having a, a lowly place that you perceive yourself to be, that you look at yourself not 
in a haughty way, but in a humble way. So Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that both, both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prayed, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I tithe, I fast, and I keep your word. I do it all right, blah, blah, blah. And the tax collector, he was kind of in the background. He's doing one of these jobs. He felt pretty convicted being in the presence of the Lord. He couldn't even look up. All he could say was, Lord, have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. And Jesus said, which one, to his disciples, he says, which one of you, these two, do you think went home forgiven? Well, we all know the answer. A broken and a contrite spirit, the Lord says, I won't despise. You come, you come before me humbly and openly and honestly, and I'll work in your life. But more importantly, in closing this morning, Jesus really did die on the cross for your sins. And if you're here and you have never asked Jesus, Lord, I'm a sinner just like that guy beating his chest. And he, if you can forgive him, you can forgive me too. If you've never given your heart to the Lord, uh, the best news is that Jesus really did die on the cross for your sins. He really was buried. He really did rise again three days later. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. And he's sort of looking over at the Father. He says, it's getting pretty late, isn't it? And only the Father knows, not the Son, not the angels, when the Father's gonna look down and say, no, today is the day. We don't know what that is. He just told us to watch and what? Pray that you be counted worthy to escape the things that are coming on this planet. And I see them coming. So, not too much over my time. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, Thank you for the Proverbs. How practical it is as, as this book teaches us how to live, teaches us how to pray right, teaches us how to pray wrong. So Lord, it's really an issue of faith that you really are the Father who knows best. And if you come to us one day and say, it's time for you to get your house in order, I'm taking you home. Lord, help us just be humble and admit that your ways are always better than ours. And so I pray for your word this morning. Plant it deep in our hearts. Bless the rest of our week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.